Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the scandal that dare not speak its name. A wealthy and powerful businessman is accused of bullying, sexual harassment and racial abuse of his own staff. But because he has an expensive team of highly skilled lawyers, we may never find out who he is or what he has actually done. It's me two times a million and it's not going away any time soon. The battle lines are drawn. The story has come to light because yesterday the Daily Telegraph were issued with an injunction by the Court of Appeal preventing them from publishing any details of the case. The businessman's lawyers convinced the judges that his privacy was more important than the revelations were in the public interest. But that can't be right, can it? Like Harvey Weinstein, he got people to sign non-disclosure agreements, but you shouldn't be able to sign away your rights just for a fee, should you? 0344 499 1000. You might think uh, that if you sign a document and you get paid a load of money, then that should be the end of it. However, in this day and age, that not is not necessarily the case. Daisy McAndrew is here, and we'll be finding out why so many new build housing estates are only accessible now by car. That can't be good for the future, and why the UK is now the most congested country in Western Europe. We've got loads of other things going on, including a plague of locusts, well, maybe not a plague, uh, plus rugby legend Donnie Weir uh, is going to join us as well. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, and Daisy McAndrew on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, um, apparently, we are actually building housing estates, which I suppose is good news. It's the first bit of good yeah. news we've heard in the housing projects well, we don't know uh, for if they're a while. Affordable, uh, we don't different... know if they're remotely affordable, <laughs> but if they're not affordable, then presumably you wouldn't be able to move in if you didn't have a car as well. But So that what that really tells you, I suppose, is that they must be you know, quite expensive houses because yep. you can't move people into a housing estate if they've got no way of getting there. Yeah, exactly. Or exactly. no way of getting out of there. No, and what the thing I found most shocking. So they've done research about you know these. I think it's twenty different um, estates, mm. and you have to nearly all of them. You have to you have to be able you have to drive in order to get to them. Yeah. They don't have any sort of paths. They don't have the roads aren't wide enough for buses. So you would, couldn't even have a bus. This route. is the bit I don't get though. How can you build a housing estate with roads that are so narrow that you can't get a bus on them? I mean, why would you do that? Well, I suppose they'll just be you know like in the sort of Brookside side type. Well, like the sort of cul-de-sac type I mean, they, things. They're only big enough for one car to pass. You know, where a car has to yeah. sort of wait to the side. So if they're little wiggly little roads, um, I think only one or two had a railway light station anywhere near them. So people have to be able to drive themselves to and from work if they're mm. going to live in these estates. And one, and, and but that just creates what it is is that this just creates congestion in the nearby sort of towns where they are working, or in the nearby towns where there are railway stations where they're going to go from. Let's talk to Councillor Martin Tett, uh, who's a transport spokesman uh, from the local government association. Martin, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi there, Mike. Thanks good very much indeed well. for joining us. I mean, obviously, I suppose it's good news that we are seeing some housing estates being built. But if they're not actually building housing estates 
with the view to, uh, you know, what the people who live there are going to do in terms of getting out of it and, and going to work and all of that. It seems like a bit of a, a mismatch, doesn't it? Yeah, well, first of all, it is good news we're building more houses and the country has a major housing crisis. You know, a lot of young people can't afford to get on the housing ladder. So we do need to see a lot more houses built. So that, that is good news. Um, first of all, councils are very... I mean, I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with this report. I think there's a lot of really good stuff in this and I recognise some of the things that are being put forward. Um, but first of all, councils do look at where these houses are being built. But there is in the planning system something called a presumption in favour of sustainable development. In other words, quite frankly, councils have to find reasons to turn something down rather than saying necessarily things are very good. So mm. developers will come forward with sites that they have bought that are deliverable. Um, you know, and councils actually find it quite hard to turn some of these down under planning law. Um, so they will build where people basically are going to offer up the sites. Um, and also, quite frankly, you know, we will look at things like roads. I mean, I, the, I've read this report, so I understand what's in it in a lot of detail. They argue that, you know, presumption is given to roads first over other forms of development. The reality is, you know, I'm sad to say, and I'm a cyclist myself, most people do drive. You know, they drive to work, they drive to the shops and whatever. So if we don't have roads that work, that's the first thing that people complain about. So we look at roads. And then we quite often as councils do look at things like cycle paths, footpaths and so on, you know, where these can be put in. But what we find is a lot of developers push back and say they're just not going to pay for those sort of facilities. And they can argue something called viability. Basically, there's not enough money in the development to enable them to put these in. And it's a big problem for councils. But I suppose I completely understand that, you know, estates are going to be built with roads because everybody has a car. But the only way that people are going to be encouraged to get out of their car and try to use other forms of, uh, of transport is if those other forms of transport are available. So, and again, I understand house builders, you know, they are businesses and they have to, you know, they have to be viable and they have to have the viability. So isn't there an argument that it's up to the government to encourage them, whether it's with tax breaks or you know, whatever it might be, sub subsidies or something, to, to put those alternative forms of transport in there if we're going to hit our various emissions targets and so on? It's, they, they're going to have to do things like that. Well, there's a, there's, there's a whole lot of issues wrapped up in what you just said. I mean, first of all, yeah, should we be looking at walking and cycling paths in new developments? Absolutely. Should we try and link new developments to stations? Absolutely. But in terms of the funding for that, as I've just said, the biggest problem we tend to come across is developers simply say there's not enough money in it for them to actually put a lot of those facilities in. Not in every case, but in some cases. So should the government then step in and provide that funding? Well, that's an argument. You know, I think you're going to find the central government saying, hang on, we're not going to pay for this no. you know, for each and every development around the country. This could be billions and billions. My response, quite frankly, is we need to look at a better way, the way in which we actually look at the funding from developments. You've got a situation, particularly in the southeast of England, where a piece of green land you know, can be worth, as an agricultural piece of land, say £10,000 an acre. Once it's got planning permission, that can be worth £2 million an acre because the planning permission... It's really that much of a difference. Wow. Oh, it's a massive, massive That's difference. That's incredible. But what actually happens, We're all in the wrong business. <laughs> well, you know, when you look at who sells to whom, you know, the farmer gets a big uplift because he now knows his land's got planning yeah. permission. So he sells it for, you know, what I would regard, he might not regard, as, as a small fortune. That can be sold on to one person who sells it on to another person who sells it on to another person who eventually develops the site. And, of course, what they turn around to the council and say is, I'm sorry, I paid so much for this land, I can't afford to put in all these cycle paths and walkways. 
you know, you're going to have to do that as the council, which we, of course, can't afford to do any longer. So I think we need to look at a much better system for capturing the real value that's generated mm. by planning permission on the uplift in the value of the land. So, and that would help fund a lot of this infrastructure. How, but, when but you say, it, I sorry. was going to say, shouldn't it be all about actually the beginning of the process? And when you sell the parcel of land for development, that it must have, again, a certain number of conditions that must be met. You know, so regardless of whether you sell it on or not, uh, whoever buys it or whoever, you know, is the inheritor of it has to do all the things that you made the initial prospector uh, do. Well, you go back to the planning system. I mean, fundamentally, you only can put planning conditions on when you have an application. So when somebody comes along and says, look, I'm a developer, I want to build you know, 500 houses, 1,000 houses or whatever, that's when you get into the discussion about exactly what the site's going to look like and so on. That's when you can put the planning conditions on. I think we need to go right back to the start of this process and say, look, when the farmer realises that this land has now been zoned for planning, there should be a guaranteed uplift. He should get a reasonable profit from this. I get that. But it shouldn't be thousands of percent. It should be maybe 10, 20 times the value of the land, you know, not some gazillions of times the value of the land. And that means there's more money in the pot for the sort of infrastructure this report is talking about. But how would you actually do that? I completely get, I think I get what you're saying, Martin, which is that it's in the process of um, giving that planning permission that makes that land so incredibly valuable and that the the... You know, the local councils or the local people should get some sort of benefit from that rather than it all just going into the pockets of the farmers so that there's money left over from yeah. that great wealth that's being mm. created yeah. to, to pay for these things that are crucial for, for, for communities. But how, how could you do that on a legal basis or you know, legislature? Well, you need to change in the law fundamentally because at the moment um, there's actually enshrined in law the fact that the, the, the hope value of this land um, is, is built into the system. And by the way, it's not just the farmer, because quite often this land is sold on and on and on by various people. You know, and everybody's taking a slice of the value as it goes through one hand after another after another before you get to the developer who actually builds the houses. So, you know, there's lots of fingers in this pie. I think you'd need to look at a system whereby actually what you do is you guarantee a percentage uplift on the value of the land to the farmer, a good percentage, so he makes a good profit on it. But then there's enough left in the system. So the difference between that and what the value of the houses being built on the land is to give the roads, the, you know, the, the connections for the cycle paths, the local parks and so on. Because otherwise we're never going to get enough money from central yeah. government realistically to build all the stuff that this report talks about. Uh, and Martin, are there other countries that do something similar to that or any examples we can look at? Well, Germany is the one I've always had quoted because I've asked this question too. You know, my belief is in Germany, which is a, you know, another free enterprise country run by a, you know, Yes, because it, do, it, it does smack of, kind of big government a little yeah, yeah, bit, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, but you've got to look at the system. I mean, I'm a conservative. You know, yeah. I believe in a free enterprise. But what you've got here is an artificial market mm. because the value of this land is only generated by a, by a local government planning system. Yeah. You know, otherwise it's, it's, it's just not worth that. So it's, it's a completely artificial construct market. So if you look at Germany, my understanding is that the central government actually comes in and buys the land, although I think it's the local council, comes in and buys the land at agricultural rates and then effectively uses the uplift mm. um, to deliver the local services. I'm guessing the farmers what, so don't, don't, mean, don't like that plan well, like, very well, much. Well, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a bit the of... the system is, I'm told. Well, that's I mean, a bit of a fixed game, that, isn't it? <laughs> so you buy, you give the, 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 uh, the farmers a measly amount of money and then you immediately buy the land and give yourself planning permission uh, to make a massive profit. 
Well, let's look at... I mean, first of all... Doesn't this sound is very fair. This is, let me be really clear. This is what I, I haven't been to Germany and looked at this. This is what I'm told happens. So, right. you know, I'll put, take that under advisement. Right. But if you look at it realistically... Sounds quite if German, you're a, isn't it? But if you're, a German, if you're a German farmer and you sell your land normally, you'd sell it on the open market as agricultural land right. and you'd get so much an acre. That's what you'd expect. That's quite normal, mm. right? If the planning system changes that... You know, that's a construct of the planning system. So actually, why should you necessarily expect to get that, you know, that gazillion... Well, because if the people lift? granting the planning permission are the people to whom you sold the land, it seems like that's a bit of a conflict of interest. should have surely a system whereby it's a bit like, uh, you know, when you buy a footballer and you sell them on, if that footballer then gets sold on again... Uh, you still get a little bit of the uh, the pay the pay but the ultimate, Again, we're talking about the German system, which I'm not. You know, I can't claim yeah. to be an expert on. But you know, the the people who build the houses ultimately are private builders yeah. by and large. So you know, no, this I get isn't that. a nationalised system. But we're looking at a couple of uh, instances here in the, uh, in the story I'm reading this morning. Great mm. Western Park, a Taylor Wimpy development near Didcot, Oxfordshire, where residents had to climb over a fence to cross the site boundary because there were not enough pedestrian links with neighbouring areas. Prior's Hall yeah, Park, too. another one uh, on the outskirts of Corby, Northamptonshire, devoid of people during the day. Uh, buses only go as far as the entrance to the estate, which is off a main road. I mean, surely the council is, is empowered to fix all of that or to, again, put conditions on these builders and say, look, you cannot just build houses and loads of driveways and loads of tiny little roads. You have to make sure uh, that you are liaising with the local bus company, such as it is, and, and make it happen. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I've, I mean, I've read the case studies too. You have to be a bit careful about understanding what exactly the local situations are. And I don't claim to be an expert on any of these. Right. But, you know, take the one about someone climbing over a fence. Mm. I really don't know the local situation there. But I can talk about one estate we've got locally here, where actually the parish council asked for the fact that you couldn't walk between the new housing estate and the station. Right. Because what they feared was actually that area would all be um, taken by a Commuters. Right. They, what they didn't want was the estate, the new estate, to be turned into a commuter car park, right. with everybody just literally cutting through straight to the station. Oh, sure. and dumping their cars there. Sure, exactly. Well, parts oh, of I London. See. Well, parts of there's ways of fixing that as well. To, to, and, and again, I'm not talking about specifics. So I don't know the case studies, mm. but you know, you've got to you've got to go behind some of these headlines to some extent to actually mm. find out what the local situation was. Yeah, sure. Listen, Councillor, I know you've got to go, Martin. Thanks very much indeed, Councillor Martin Tett, their transport spokesman uh, for the local government association. Certainly, that was what was the case in parts of West London, not yeah. so much in East London, but people used yeah. to drive into Chiswick and jump on the district line and travel yeah. into town. And they changed all that by basically making it all residential parking. So you have to get a permit to park. So the council actually ended up even making even more money. But 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 also, uh, you know, these days, in these days, you can definitely use technology to get around those problems. You know, you can have um, car registration, t- you know, identification. Yes. Like, I mean, you know, Sainsbury's car park yeah. has, has those. So sure. you could definitely have them where only residents could park their car and everyone yeah. else would get a you know, bill in the post mm. or whatever it might be. Right. I mean, another thing we didn't cover with um, Councillor Tett is what what alarmed me about this story is that with an ageing population, yeah. as we have, more and more people in these estates, in any housing development, are eventually going to be beyond the age of driving yeah. because we're all living longer, but we're still only going to be driving up to our you know, 80s or whatever. Yeah. So you're going to have people totally cut off from their communities, not being able to you know, be independent at all, who will then clog up the social care yeah. system because they won't be able to stay at home. Right. And then you'll have even more people needing to access the roads because they'll have to come in ambulances and minibuses and all kinds yeah, of stuff. On wheels, whatever it yeah. might be. I it mean, just it's... seems to me it's, it's not that complicated to have a bit of joined up thinking, which we seem to lack massively in this country. You know, yeah. the idea that, that we cannot somehow say to people building housing estates, 
these are the things you need to include. Yeah. And you can bet your bottom dollar that those German housing estates don't have these problems. The one that Martin was talking about, you know, there will be, you know, joined up thinking there, they, you know, they will, particularly if the, if the local council is benefiting financially from the, you know, the inflated uh, values of these properties, yeah. they will have put in all these sy- systems to make them a bit Jenny Raggett, longer working. Yeah, who's a men, uh, one of the researchers who's done this study for Transport for New Homes says, many urban extensions on the ad- edges of towns are being built with new road capacity to cope with the onslaught of new car journeys. But as those cars head for our towns and cities, they clog up existing roads. And that's the problem. Yeah. So, for example, if you're building something, I don't know, in Hertfordshire, um, but it's nowhere near any of the motorways, the roads, as you get closer to those motorways, will become incredibly clogged up because you're not yeah. really creating any infrastructure or any proper roads for the extra population to move to, to move around in. Well, it'll be fascinating to see and sort of, I don't know, when, when driverless cars and all the rest of it um, you know, really are a reality, which I guess 20, 30 years' time, how that will affect you know, these estates because so much of these estates and all planning, all, all developments at the moment, are taken up with the size of the car park. Yeah. So every single one of these, these houses has at least least two car parking mm-hmm. spaces and so on. And again, all the sort of futurologists, you know, tell you again and again that that will all change as people really do hire driverless cars or yeah. use driverless cars. You won't have a car per household or two cars per mm. household. And that, that will change well, yeah, the but whole you look will, of these But places. you will if you live in a place where there's simply no other way to get around. I mean, it's all very well saying, oh, we're going to use more public transport and, and, you know, that's going to make sure that more people are carried on trains and on buses and all that. But they have to be there. You have to be able to get to, oh, from point A to point B. Oh, no, absolutely. And people will still be reliant on... Um, travelling by car yeah. but they won't have a two cars per household because yeah. what will happen with the driverless car system so I'm told by people who know all about these things oh, yeah. um, is that you will call that car to you to take you to a place and will you like, own the car or will like it be new, like it'll be like prob- a... pro- probably not yeah. and so what because what happens at the moment is that cars that we own mm. let's say each person in these households yeah. has you know two cars right for about 90% of the time, those cars aren't moving. Mm. So let's say well, you know, it's a very traditional house, you know, one, one partner is driving to work, leaving the car in the car yeah. park at work for eight hours and then driving back, right. leaving that car stationary yeah. for the next eight hours. Okay. What will happen with a driverless car is, is that the car be will be moving all the time. Okay. So you'll still have lots of people reliant on cars, but you'll have far fewer cars in circulation. Except unless we change the way that we work, the car will be at its most its highest demand in between certain hours when more than one person will want to use it, presumably. Absolutely, but still, you still won't need as many cars are on the road at the yeah. moment. And, and again, let's say the other car is there for most of the time apart from that. The, the pinch points of the school yeah. run. Or you know, I can points. imagine a scene, but it's only because I've got a warped sense of humour <laughs> of two people ordering the same car and it's sort of going from one place to the well, other and again, one pulling in, it, one pushing it. In, in theory, car sharing. I mean, car sharing is still happening, is already happening now by people using mm. Uber in a way that you I'm couldn't... I'm not keen be, on that, to be honest. No, I'm not either, but it is happening and yeah. you couldn't have imagined it happening just a few years ago. So it's just an example of something that happens very quickly mm. once people you know, grasp onto it, which it, it's almost impossible to imagine beforehand. And that's the whole... When people explain to me how driverless cars will change town planning, yeah. this being an example, uh-huh. and the fact that we simply won't need huge car parks for you know um, businesses, huge car parks for... Uh, supermarkets, huge car parks or car parking spaces in new developments. It's really interesting thinking about what you could do with that land instead. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, 03444991000. Coming up very shortly, we're going to be introducing you to Doddy Weir, uh, who's got a new autobiography out called My Name is Doddy. An extraordinary man, an extraordinary rugby player, uh, a fantastic after-dinner speaker, a guy that uh, I've met and been in the company of a few times. Uh, and uh, he now is meeting a very, very different challenge, as he's going to be telling us. He's suffering from motor neuron disease. Um, but he's an incredible character, and we'll be finding out uh, from Doddy precisely some of the uh, some of the great stories in his book, but also you know how he is kind of um, trying to raise money not only for his own battle with motor neuron disease, but also for sort of general recognition of uh, the disease itself, because it's something which an awful lot of people have to uh, put up with over over the course of time. But uh, before we do that, uh, let's go to the phones. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Peter uh, is in Folkestone. Hello, Peter. Hello, mate. How are you? Very Hi, well indeed. What do you want to tell us? Driverless cars. Yeah. Can't, can't mustn't, mustn't have, should not have. We, we've got to be wise about this and not adopt this technology. Why do you say we, that? We can't. Well, for lots of different reasons. I could go on for days, mate, but I'll try and be brief. Okay, well, do try, because we, it's, it's, it's 11.34, but go for it. <laughs> okay, okay. So, the, if you go to the United States, yeah. this is a fact, and you look at the job listings for every single state in the United States. Mm. The largest job title in every single state in the United States is truck driver okay. or taxi driver. Yeah. If you adopt this technology, you'll be wiping out those jobs. Yes. Right? So, and, also, and, and I worked in Stuttgart earlier this year, uh-huh. okay? Right. And Stuttgart's a motor town, home of Mercedes, home of Porsche, right? right. I bumped into an IT guy there, and I work in IT, and he was talking about driverless cars. Okay. And I said, well, some guy's just been convicted in the UK for having a nap in a driverless car on the way home. Mm. And he went, oh, we're not going to do that. Everyone's going to control them from their phones. They're going to be on-demand autonomous journeys. So, Daisy, mm-hmm. I mean this with <clears throat> courtesy, the idea that you're going to have car sharing is a complete blowout idea. Why, that, you, why is that? If you go to San Francisco, one of the most wealth-unequal cities in the United States, if not the world, you're not going to be sharing your car with a refugee from a downtown refugee camp. No, but also, but there's two forms of car sharing. There's more than one person sharing a car in one journey. But the more relevant car sharing is that you will be the only person in that car for your journey, and then the car will go and service somebody else. So that's sharing but, but a it's not car. Autonomous, and you don't control it. You then are asking. You, well, you're then you're basically hiring. You're basically hiring um, a, a taxi with no driver. Yeah, well, right? yeah, exactly correct. So you're then not in control of it to the same extent of your own vehicle because you are then dependent on the schedule of the taxis around you, not the ability to choose and go whenever you like. Well, that depends on the supply of the taxis, doesn't it? Yeah, but this guy's intent was to take away every personal car in San Francisco and to replace every personal car with a personal car electric sharing thing that everyone can then choose to use whenever and however they like. And you've also got to then consider that as an aspirational thing, 
public travel or private travel used to be 40 years ago everyone wanted a, their own car as a sign of economic independence and betterment in wealth status right what we're going to have if if all these cars are on the road at the same time they're going to have to be charged in such a way as to only allow wealthier people to be on at wealthier times and thus you're well, going to why 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 have, does that follow I don't, I don't follow that argument well because if you're well how are you going to prevent congestion if you replace every current car with a new personal charged car well, if it, it'll, it'll happen gradually over time. One of the other reasons that people say it does um, reduce congestion enormously is that driverless cars drive much, much closer to each other because they're, they're controlled by sort of AI and robotics. And, they, and so you'll get many Thank more God cars. You get many more cars moving on the roads <laughs> without the congestion. Now, that's, that's the <laughs> argument that they put forward. All I can see is a massive pileup. Uh, of, yes. of driverless cars but I think Daisy's right I think you, but you've both got a, a, an interesting point I think the idea is that they would not be replacing cars that, which currently exist one for one no. you know one I've, driverless car presumably which was shared would probably replace maybe five or ten cars you know at I mean? least yeah. at least five or ten I mean I think Peter with the greatest I think we're a respect, long way off this to be honest um, to, to, to send the greatest respect right back at you <laughs> um, th- I think your point about uh the employment side of things is the weakest argument that there is for trying to stand in the tide of technological revolution because it's going to happen anyway. And they, every time we've had any sort of industrial revolution, huge swathes of jobs, whether it's been agricultural jobs or anything else, blue collar workers, those jobs have been lost. Employment has always been found for those people in another area and it will be retraining. If you look at delivery companies, whether it's Amazon or UPS or whoever it may be, they now employ more pilots than British Airways employees yeah. because they're set, because they're moving their goods around mm. um, using planes. Now those those pilots, those are new jobs that have come from the way that you know the, these companies have now changed their behaviours. Sure. So though, yes, it's of course there will be total destruction of some of those employments in some of those those American states you're talking about. They will be found new employment in a different area. I think that's true, Peter. Listen, thanks very much for doing. We've got to move on. Paddy's in Suffolk. Hello, Paddy. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Good morning. What would you like to tell us? Well, well I was going to speak about the uh, estate, but a quick word on the driverless cars. Oh, yes. They're not driverless. They're government-driven cars. The government controls when and where you go. Oh, great. So, so I finally get a government uh, car. A chauffeur. Finally. That's <laughs> yeah. what yeah, I've always wanted. If you follow the government in some way, <laughs> they switch them off and you can't go anywhere. We'll be under yeah. curfew. It's not Saudi Arabia we're talking about. No Paddy. going to the pub. Oh, we can't talk about Saudi Arabia, um, but there's too much money involved. But um, going on to the states with no roads. Well, we've been doing this for a very long time. We've been building these big estates in the back end of nowhere and dumping all these people on them Uh since the 60s and 50s and whatever. The only good thing today is, well, the only good thing about those estates of years ago was the houses were a decent size. Nowadays, they're rabbit hutches. Well, um, it depends, I suppose, on where you are and what the what the prices are. I mean, there's a great many things that, that are taken into account. But I'm, I'm, I certainly don't think it's a very good idea. I don't know what it's like where you are, Paddy, to build a new housing estate with no links to anything. No, well, I've heard in some European countries, by law, you have to build the roads first. Yes. Now... Now, you, you had a guest on earlier, and he was saying, well, the council can't afford to yes, do this. that's right. Well, maybe if they were to cut the salaries of these 
executives who run these councils, they earn... Sometimes they earn many more times than what the Prime Minister oh, earns. for sure. Well, the Chief Executive of Edinburgh City Council, when I was living in Edinburgh many years ago, was on about £450,000 a year. And their argument was that they were controlling a budget of £2 billion, Therefore, they had to be paid commensurate uh, with the private sector. To which I say, absolute balderdash. Because it's Absolutely. not the private sector yeah. and you're not running a private company. Plus, the other way they could save money is, he was mentioning how... These these uh, this piece these plots of land change hand etc. Well, maybe if they would look into the uh, bongs and brown envelopes mm. that planning certain people you know in councils receive. Well, that's what we hear, but we haven't got any proof of that, obviously, have we? Well. I think if if it's going to happen in area, any area of local government, it'll happen in planning. Yeah. I mean, Paddy's got that. that as, as we heard from our councillor earlier, the huge amounts of money that well, you Well, that was that a staggering make, uplift, wasn't it? Yeah. From 10,000 to 2 million. Yeah, it, exactly, for a square, whatever it was. I mean, it makes me want to go into housing development, well, to be honest. And the other, the other thing I've always um, been shocked about with planning is that the chairman of... I mean, I happen to know personally the chairman of Westminster City Council planning department now you can argue that that job is one of the most influential jobs in local government or central government but whoever and, and this friend of mine you know he's a very respected lawyer he has no experience whatsoever and he wouldn't mind me saying this in planning right. in architecture in uh -huh. town planning in, in whatever and what's it might he in be. charge of he's in charge of Westminster City Council planning to planning <laughs> committee and you know think, think of how important that Paddy, job yes, is please do sorry, sorry. Paddy Sorry, it's I full of the joys of spring the, this morning. I don't want to get into it. Carry on. The, the root cause of all of this is we're trying to stuff far too many people into this country. You reckon? We've all got a vested interest in it. We all want our house to go up in price. And we all, you know, we welcome stuffing. I think, I, I think it's not so much about the people being stuffed into the country as the people in the country trying to stuff their pockets with money and trying to get themselves on some kind of, you know, uh, wealth route, which they believe starts with buying a property. And I think if we got out of that habit, we'd be a lot better off. Well, I think they're both linked. You know, in, in order for your pro property to go up in price, there's got to be more demand and more demand and stuff more people in and stuff... That's what the root cause is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly one point of view, Paddy. I can't say I agree with it, but thank you for your call. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. They didn't actually play that one last night, Daisy. They didn't do anything didn't for they? the Joshua Tree. No, because they've just oh. done a big tour, including just the Joshua Tree uh, as, a, as, a, as a show. So you have to pay separately to well, hear Joshua I would, Tree no, I songs. I wouldn't put it like that, but they've got so many great songs, it doesn't really matter. I was at U2 last night, for those of you who didn't hear that earlier on. We've just been joined in the studio by Donny Weir, uh, a giant of a man in many ways, and physically not least a giant of a man. Uh, I think you're probably the tallest man that's ever been in here, Donny. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, very, lovely to be here. Very nice to see you. Now, last time I saw you was probably at a rugby game somewhere at Murrayfield uh, with your co-author, Mr Stuart Weir, um, and... Uh, he was entertaining me, and you. Uh, he was entertaining me with drink. You were entertaining me with a, with a very funny speech uh, ahead of one of the Scotland England games. I think it was. Um, your career in rugby is probably unlike many others uh, that I could mention because of all the kind of the famous the, the jokes, the laughs, the stories you've got. I mean, some of which you probably can't tell on the radio, right? Well, yeah, in some ways, but it, life's about enjoying himself. It is, uh, and with that, that's the kind of. The route I've followed from day one within right. that. So never a dull moment. Never a dull moment, indeed. And so what made you decide to do a book uh, after all this time? Well, 
Funny enough, I've been meaning to do it for about maybe 20 years, right. and, and with the diagnosis of motor neuron disease just two years ago, yes. and it gives an average life expectancy. Once diagnosed at one to three years. Is that so, right? So I thought, I maybe don't you know, have a lot. You remarkably cheerful, considering. <laughs> well, it is what it is, and, yeah. and that's the kind of the, the spirit that I, I've been with the friends and family. There's, there's nothing you can do about it. You've got to crack on with it. Right. So, so with that news, I thought, right, that was maybe the time to maybe put pen to paper and yeah. put a lot of where I've been, what I've been up to, what I've been doing. And that's where we are with the help of Stuart, as you mentioned. So, And, and Donnie, just for people who don't know anything about motor neuron, what, what is it? What's it entail? Yeah, motor neuron disease is, is a horrific illness. There, there is no cure. Terminal illness. Uh, one drug is available that came out 20 years ago. Nothing's been done since. And that drug generally gives you a three months extra life expectancy. But basically what it does, it shuts the whole body of disabilities, your body, so you, your muscles disappear, so you can't walk, your hand muscles disappear, and arms, you can't maybe go to the toilet, can't eat, can't clothe, you eventually can't speak, you can't breathe. So the whole body... Dis it just shuts down. It shuts down, mm. and all you've got left is really your eyes. And you said that um, there only one drug had been, you know... Um, had come forth and that was 20 years ago is that because nobody's putting the funding into the research or because they're finding it impossible to find any sort of cure or, or even um, a, a drug that could help combination I think combination a lot there's not a lot but in Scotland for example 5 million people live there's only 500 people with it so it's kind of numbers it's the economics it's the complexity of the disease so so with that as I say nothing has come so so people who have MND they basically got a kind of life sentence because there's not one thing that they can take so they've got no chance and that's where my foundation my name's Dolly Foundation and the book goes into a little bit just to try and give a little bit of hope because there is things going behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about my friends, family, support group that I've got, I'm able to see a lot more than a lot of people do. So it gives me a bit of spirit, gives me a reason to get up in the morning. But yes, there's there's certainly nothing that we can do to try and help our life extend. And you can see from where you are, obviously, how it affects other people, I suppose, you know, because you're, you know, an incredibly brave individual. You've you've battled on the field of play at international rugby when it really was a much, I want to say tougher game, but it was a much more kind of, shall we say, lawless game than it Physical? is Physical? Well, I mean, yeah. The, but rules, I mean, the rules were I mean, different I think then. there was a lot more punching going on in the scrum in Doddy's day than there is now, you know, gouging and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this guy played with Lawrence Delalio, who's at TalkSport quite a lot now, yeah. uh, and he was talking about, you know, the World Cup win and and you know you've you've seen all of that you've had to live through all of that as a sporting uh, sort of icon but you must it must be very tough for you to see members of your family reacting and how they how they're dealing with it you know well they they've been unbelievable supportive yeah. and as everyone else has because with the foundation it's just unbelievable it's humbling where it's gone we we've just about to commit and we're not even one year old yet one million pounds into research and wow. also into care and that's due to the generosity of a lot of people yeah. behind the scenes and seeing this as a story that they can try and follow and because Again, we mentioned this morning that uh, Yus van der Besses, and the great South African rugby player, he had MND as well. And with that, he passed away six six months ago. So he's done quite a lot to bring awareness. Right. I'm continuing his legacy with any right. luck and to see if we can finally get, get a cure to it and work together for Brilliant. that. 
And let's talk a little bit about some of the stories in the book as well, because obviously, I mean, you played for the Lions. Uh, you had many, many caps for Scotland. I mean, in, in those 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 great days. I mean, I'm of Scottish ancestry. I don't know whether Stuart's told you, but my, both my parents are Scottish, so I always support Scotland against England. And when I lived up there, I used to go to Murrayfield and loved the you know the sort of terrorising atmosphere that they used to put the English through. Um, is it still as good as that? Is it still like that? Oh, very much. Yeah. I don't think the success, the success has been as often as no. we'd like. But yeah, the, the the best game to be involved in Six Nations, Scotland v England. Yeah. Mm. Traditionally, just an amazing atmosphere. Sometimes when we played, it was so loud on the field that they were maybe two yards away from each other. I couldn't hear the calls because right. the atmosphere and the noise was just immense. But uh, this year's been good. Yeah. It's been a good year. Okay. We've got the Kolkata Cup. Let's yeah. hope we can continue keeping a hold of it. Okay. Good. And how much of the of the kind of the touring stories have you got in the book? Because those are always the uh, the ones that people like to read about. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that. It goes a lot through my childhood as well, and the stories through rugby and how how lucky and fortunate I was, and the and the and the boys behind the the scenes who were pests like Gary Armstrong, right. great player, and Brian Redpath, great players that they are, but. By God, they were annoying sometimes <laughs> off the field, the things they would do. The what, was, what was the most the annoying thing? Well, they would, they've got a very simple thing of putting salt in everything. Right. So you'd be drinking your cup of coffee and they would know they put salt, so when you're having a little taste, it would go horrible. And just salt on your porridge. Salt on the porridge, salt on that. They would salt on the porridge is not a bad I, thing, I was going to say, I have a feeling that my, my father used to say, because his mother was Scottish, Sheena MacDonald, and yeah. I have a feeling that he always said that she had salt in her porridge. <laughs> it's the recipe to do that. But not in your orange juice, and, and, and not, they would take the cheese off your your sandwiches and yeah. put sawdust on. Just that right. annoying little things that these boys would That'll do. do but, and was there more fun. of a kind of was there any more individual responsibilities? You have the sense now that you know with with different coaches and you see different styles of of, of coaching. You know Eddie Jones seems to be a guy that likes to give players their responsibilities to look after each other rather than kind of mollycoddling them in any way. I mean, what what was was it much different then? Were you expected to behave in a particular way? I think in our day we had a good day because uh, mobile phones weren't around so right. social media wasn't there because we'd meet up on a Wednesday night for example on International on Saturday mm. and have a good team bonding right. we'd enjoy Which that. would go on until Friday <laughs> yes it would <laughs> yeah, we'd go to the early hours a lot of drinking a lot yeah. of bringing each other together now that would not happen today right. mm. it's over analysed as well and over coached I think in some ways today where right. we would just get out and play and enjoy what we that, do. That's interesting. Overanalyzed. Do you mean that every minute of, of the game or, or before the game? Yeah, definitely, because they, they have a GPS system when you're playing shutdown, so they can analyse how far you're going, how fast you're going, how your heartbeat is, what you've been doing. And the same in training, you have a heart monitor on. Right. So they know that you can maybe get up to, say, 170 beats. But today you've been lazy because you've only got 90 beats. Right. So do another lap, and that's the sort of intensity that they do. Wow. Well, it's like the part. football business, isn't it? I mean, somebody was talking about this, funnily enough, the exact same thing, where they track players during the course of a game. And somebody like Lionel Messi, know, who's universally thought to be the greatest player ever, um, if it's not for Ronaldo, he doesn't move very much. And a lot of the time he just sits there, waits for the ball to come to him, and then does something with it. So... There's, you can't analyse his movement in the same way and yeah. say, well, because you're not moving well, you're not doing the, the job properly. But that's exactly the same in, in the old day, Lineker yeah. for England, Ali McCoyce for Scotland, yeah. at the right place at the right time. Yeah. There, there's no substitute for that. Yeah. But maybe you don't see that now. And is the new fitness level something which I suppose makes the game quicker and harder to play? Well, I think the fitness is just boys that are a bit bigger and stronger. Mm. 
And uh, maybe can't catch or don't understand the game. I'm saying this is a personal thing, but we don't analyse the game because right. they like the contact. To me, there's no point running into somebody else because you get tackled, you might as well run into space. And right. You don't see that often enough, and no. you won't get hurt as often as you run into space. No, um, it's. Uh, sorry, Mike. And what are, with these new fitness levels and everything being analysed, apart from what's going on in the brain, which I guess is the only bit you can't analyse, and this kind of well, you know whether they're being intelligent with their game. But what does it mean for the longevity of players? As in, can can they keep going longer because they're fitter, or are they far? You know, are they are they sent? You know, do they have to retire earlier because of the lack of fitness? I think, uh, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm sure somebody will tell me. Right, but there's there's quite a high degree of people get injured at the moment. Mm. Between maybe 16 and 25% of, of players are injured. Now, that's quite a high number. And I think because of the fitness mm. these guys are at, any little tweaks, they're, they're struggling. And also because of the collisions. They're hitting and very hard, aren't they? And, yeah, they and the sheer size. Sheer size, <laughs> exactly. So nowadays, maybe a big rugby player was 15, 16 stone. Now, that's, that's a small rugby player. So you've got yeah. 18 stone, 20 stone, or somebody off... I can't imagine fast. anyone being too happy you clash against them, though. I mean, you know, I've just say you've been blocking out the light when you came <laughs> It's the ears that do that, whatever we are. But yeah, the, the bigger hitting is like a car crash. You know, maybe it was 30, 45 yeah. miles an hour. Now it'll be 60, 70 miles an hour. These boys run each other. So I think the longevity yeah. is certainly not going to happen. And no. things mm. might have to and, and, and I'm guessing if you lose some of that longevity, you lose the leadership skills and you lose the emotional intelligence that perhaps the older players might have. Well, definitely, and, and and the experience of it as well. I think it was an example we while ago when England played Italy, and and the Italians used the rule book to its thorough and came around the wrong side of the ruck and mm. the England players didn't understand what to do. They eventually had to mm. ask the referee, right. and he says, "Look, I'm here to referee, not to coach." And yes. that was an example to me. They're not players not being able to react to what they see in front of them yeah. anymore. And it's, it's quite that's up. interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very. Well, listen, I'm afraid we're out of time, but Dolly, uh, the book is uh, out now, is it? Yeah, well, not quite now. No, not this, is, <laughs> this is a sneak preview it's tomorrow. A sneak preview is out tomorrow. Tomorrow, brilliant. yeah, Black and White Publishing. My name's Dolly Autobiography. Fantastic read. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to tell everyone to get it. And is there a place they can go and look to find your foundation as well? Yeah, my name's Dolly Foundation. My name's Five Foundation, a website there. Okay. There's a lot of bits and pieces going on. And again, thanks to everyone for the support. We'll continue support well, to try and make Congratulations on the money you've raised already. It's an amazing achievement. It's tremendous. Thank Absolutely you. brilliant. Dolly Weir, uh, my name's Dolly, the autobiography, uh, an extraordinary book, uh, very well worth reading. And uh, go and check out the, uh, the foundation as well. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online. And on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.